Welcome to another episode of the Powerless to Powerful Recovery podcast. My name is Jason. I'm an alcoholic and addict. As always, our mission is to share experience, strength, and hope across multiple media platforms. The story of addiction and the road to recovery. We're not affiliated with Alcoholics Anonymous or any other 12-step-based organizations or groups in any way. Today's episode, we're going to have Caesar R. on the show, and he's one of my dear friends. We've experienced recovery together inside, in prison, and now we get to experience it out here. And we always talk about believing in a higher power and and that just that beginning belief in step two. And when that belief turns into experience and we've got to experience God through each other, man, it's just, it's a pleasure to have you on. I want to welcome Caesar to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, this dude, it's a trip, man, to just to have you and be sitting here with you right now, dude, from where we've came from when we first met. And it's funny, you know, when we first met, so a little history of, of, of Caesar and I. So I was on the yard. We were at, I was at Florence North Unit, and he ultimately ended up there, and we'll talk about that later. And I think about this time, right, um, when, you, when I first met Caesar. So I was teaching a drug class. I worked for Moderate Treatment. Big shout out to Ms. Franz. Big shout out to her. And a very important part in both of our lives, man. She really is. She was an angel sent to that yard to help many, many different men. And uh, so we actually had a job opening. And I remember sitting in Ms. Franz's office and we got a call from one of the CO3s that, that ran WIP, right? That's the job placement. And they said, hey, we got a guy who's looking for a job. And you got to keep in mind, like in early recovery for me, like I was off the chain. Dude. Like I took this shit so seriously. I would hunt my sponsees down. I would pat them down. I would double back or I'd leave and then double back around on them just to see what they were doing. And, you know, and this job meant a lot to me because when I started working this job, man, you know, the, another facilitator that was there that worked there, he was facilitating, facilitating groups and selling drugs on the yard and, you know, truly, you know, rest in peace. Cause he didn't make it through his addiction, man. And it, it's super sad, but you know, it's one of those things, man, this thing is deadly, man. It wants us dead. And, uh, so I took it very seriously. So I was very hesitant to bring anybody on. And I'm going to tell it the way I remember it. And I'm going to have Caesar tell it the, the way he remembers it. But I'll never forget it. And Miss Franz says, hey, we got a guy who wants to get a job over here. He's going to come in. Why don't we do a group interview? And I'm like, all right, yeah, we're going to interview this dude. We'll see what he's all about. So I remember he shows up and, you know, it's Caesar's Mexican, right? And, you know, he's got a tattoo on his face, right? And I, I recognize the tattoo. And we'll share more about that later in his story. We might touch on that a little bit. And. So he sits down and I'll never forget it. He had a, he had a, it was summertime, right? And he had a little sweat rag, you know what I mean? He's sweating already and I'm asking him all kinds of questions. And if I was in the, the truth is, if I was to really know the story and you know what he had been through, I might've thought twice about the, <laughs> about the way I was questioning him. Cause I was asking him, what do you do for your recovery? How long you've been sober? What's that tattoo for on your face? Are you still active? I said, remember, I said, what's your prison number? And you're, I'm like, this is your first time in prison. And I knew that the number didn't add up. And I was like, why does your number not add up? Are you serious about your recovery? And you're, and, and he was answering all the questions, man. And, uh, and you know, I'll never forget it. You know, when, when he left that day, Miss Franz looked at me and he said, she said that God brought him here to our doorstep today. And I said, well, if God brought him here, then we got to have him on. But how do you remember that time? Man, I remember walking in there and um, not knowing what to expect. Um, I walked in and there was like this interrogation going on. Basically, <laughs> I was being bombarded um, by questions. And then, I, but I could tell that the reason that you guys were asking me those questions was because you cared about what you guys had going on. Sure. Um, and even though I was extremely uncomfortable with it, I did my best to uh, hold it together with the sweaty palms and the stuttering <laughs> and all that stuff. You know what I mean, um, I said, you know what? I really want it. And even though I'm uncomfortable right now, I really want it. And, uh, 
Um, I just I toughed it out, and I, I'm pretty sure it was like two or three minutes, but it, to me, it felt like twenty minutes <laughs> or half an hour. Like, and we laugh, we laugh about it all the time because it was it was something, man. I'll, I'll never forget it. And uh, you hit me with probably the most personal questions that anyone has ever hit me with in prison. Like, like there was just no filter, right? <laughs> there was nothing. I went full throttle on you. Yeah. I wanted to know what you were about. I wanted to know what the tattoos meant. I wanted to know when you got your number, when the last time you used was. I mean, I wanted to know everything because I took – and he's right, man. I took that so seriously because we had such a platform there. And, you know, when I started the group, people didn't want to be in it. And, you know, Caesar ended up working with us, and we'll talk more about that and just the culture that we built around this group, that we had waiting lists for people that just wanted to be a part of, that wanted to get in the group, that wanted to find recovery, and they knew that was a safe place. People will come hang out there. And it was something that I'll always forever cherish. That time I had there with Ms. Franz, the time with you and the other coworkers that we had, man, it was just an amazing experience to be part of. So there's a miracle that happens from that point. Like there is truly a miracle that happens from that point. But first, it's important. And, you know, I share this every time I bring one of my friends on and I interview them and you get to hear just their message and their story. Everything starts somewhere. It's an endless journey, but the journey begins somewhere. It doesn't end. It's an endless journey, but it's got a beginning. So let's talk a little bit about the beginning is like, so you're from California. I want you to share what it was like growing up in California, the family dynamic. What was that like for you? Sure. So um, I got four brothers, one twin brother, um, a mom and dad. Uh, I feel blessed to have a that family because, well, you know, my dad had, if I remember correctly, seven brothers, two sisters. My mom had um, two brothers, three sisters. Um, so like gatherings, we're always pretty neat. And I mean, I got to experience having a lot of uncles, a lot of cousins, a lot of aunts. Um, holidays were pretty neat. Um, I enjoyed being around my family. So you're, so you're, he's Mexican, right? So are you the type of Mexicans that throw the party in the front yard with the Chevy Silverado tailgates and you grill in the front yard or you, you keep the grill in the backyard? Uh, we're probably going to start off in the front, but then when the, when the neighbors start to call the cops, we're going to move, you're gonna the, move back, the back. You're going to move the music a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> So what was that like, though, man, growing up in California? You know, what was that like with your with your family? You know, how was that? Because it plays such an impactful part, you know, the way we grow up and the characteristics that we exhibit and false beliefs and the lessons that we learn to be true that are false. And it just plays such an impact on us as we get older. But what was that like for you just with the family dynamic specifically? Sure. So, you know, man, like even though I had a good family, like I said, mom and dad, good brothers and sisters, um, my dad did the best he could to provide for me and my family. Um, the problem was that he had a problem with drugs. I mean, with alcohol. I mean, he would come home and he would be intoxicated. And from early childhood, I got to see my dad physically abuse my mom in front of me. And uh, that was very traumatic for me. I remember moments when I would try to hold on to his leg and pull him off of her. Um, I would. I was basically like, I couldn't do anything to help my mom and I would be so scared for her that the only thing I could remember doing was banging my head on the floor until my forehead would bleed. Yeah. And that's some of my earliest memories as a sure. child yeah. of um, living under the roof with the alcoholic dad. And I remember um, early on making this resolution and telling myself, I am never going to turn into that kind of individual. I will never turn into that kind of man that turns to, that treats a woman like that, that treats his kids like that, that um, comes home and just causes all this wreckage. There's no way that I'm ever going to turn into that. And ultimately, we say those things 
I'm never going to do that. I'm never going to do that. That's never going to be like me. I'm going to be different than my dad. I'm going to be different than my mom. I'm going to be, I'm going to raise my kids different. I'm going to do all these things different than the way I was raised. But ultimately when we cross over into addiction, we become that. And it's a reality check, right? Absolutely. It's a devastating blow. It's a devastating blow, right? Um, so ultimately, when you're suffering trauma at home, I mean, it's safe to, you know, make an assumption that school didn't go very well for you. <laughs> what, what was school? And it, I want to tell one funny story. I remember. So when I end up, so when we were back on the yard, me and Caesar, and I remember uh, you started taking college classes, right? Mm-hmm. And I remember when Caesar started taking college classes and I was like, <laughs> look, dog, I'm going to help you. Yeah. We're going to meet up. We're going to go over your schoolwork. I'll help you through it. We'll get your feet wet. And it didn't take very long. I helped him for a short period of time and then he took off running. But the first thing he said to me when we sat down, we were in the Hope Center on North Unit. We sat down for the very first time. He had his tablet. We got his, his books. We're like, all right, we're going to do this. He says, all right, Jay, look, I got to tell you something. I got my GED, but I got my GED. I was in juvenile yeah. detention and I only got my GED because my homie was banging the GED teacher yeah. And she passed me. She passed me. She <laughs> had to. I was gonna tell on her. Yeah. <laughs> I will ne- know, she, I'll never forget that. She dude. was passing out GEDs to all the homies because we knew what was going on. Because you knew what was going was just on. Helping everybody out. And but I robbed myself the experience of studying. Let me show you know what that looked like for me. So what, what was school like though during that period of time? I mean, how long did it last? I mean, were you present? Did you go to school? Like, what was That's that like? Um. So I, I remember when well, we lived down the street from from the school and. Basically, we would just get ourselves ready in the morning, have a cereal, some, I don't know, Fruity Pebbles or something like that. Watch a little bit of, um, I don't know, Scooby-Doo or something like mm-hmm. that, whatever was on TV, and then walk to school, which was literally a couple blocks down. Um, but, man, what happened is, like, there was just no way that I could move past the trauma that was going on uh, in my house and in my life. And while other kids were focusing on their work and bringing home A's and stars and all these good efforts on their assignments and little notes that the teachers were giving them. Um, man, I was failing. Yeah, you're failing. There's there just no way that I could concentrate. There was no way that I could move past those memories that were replaying over and over and over in my mind. And there was times when the teacher would call me to do assignments that were due to be presented to the class and I would go up there and I would just freeze. Sure. I had no homework. I didn't get nothing done. Yeah. You know I mean, and it's tough, man. It's a really tough thing. And, you know, what type of neighborhood did you grow up in California? So I'm born in um, Anaheim, California. Uh, it's, I will say, percentage wise, um, 90% Mexican, the other 10% um, white people who think they're Mexican. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, but it's basically the Hispanic community. You know what I mean? Uh, um, um, it's a big Mexican community right there, and uh, there's a lot of drugs around there. There's a lot of gangs around there. Um, we have Disneyland. We have a lot of theme parks, but to be honest, it's a big underground drug dealing going on right there sure. because all the um, tourists and all that stuff. So there's a lot of drugs going on there, but there's, man, at that time, I remember being about 30-something gangs in that city, so there's sure. a lot of gangs around and, there. And I ask you that because I know, obviously, I know you're a dear friend of mine. I've heard your message many times. It's had, I mean, I've had the privilege of hearing it, and, and you've been able to utilize it to help so many people, and I know what that neighborhood plays into your story as we get along, but we'll touch on that in a second. So ultimately, man, you know, I know you end up going to Mexico, right? And I always want to say this, and I heard it from a dear friend of mine, and he said, you know, that kids experience trauma, right? And we hold on to this trauma, and we think it's our fault, but I'm here to tell you guys it's not your fault. And what I understand is that bad people do bad things. 
and we don't deserve it and we didn't do anything wrong and it's not our fault. And I know you've experienced some trauma. Do you want to kind of talk a little bit about what you're comfortable with, about what that trauma was like, how it happened and what that really played an impact on you going forward? Absolutely. So, so the only way I'm comfortable with this today is because I've learned that it helps other people. Sure. Uh, for a long time, I just suppressed it and it was my biggest secrets and the things that were going on, the things that I got exposed to, I was just like, that was the biggest part of my disease, to be honest. But what it looked like, basically, you know, as a child, um, um, my grades are, um, I'm failing in my grades. I'm not doing good in school. I'm starting to act out, probably because of what's going on in the house. Part of it's probably because I, I look at it as having fun. But, um, you know, a friend of mine made the mistake of, number one, he showed me where his dad kept his gun. Number two, he called me a wetback. And then mm-hmm. that resulted of me breaking into his house. Um, when they weren't home and stealing his dad's gun. Um, so not too long after that, um, let's say a family member. Um, right. He trade. Hold on. I remember this now. It's coming <laughs> back to me. Didn't he trade you the gun for some meth? Somebody decided to give me meth sure, for the gun. I remember that. Um, again, 11 years old around that time. Um, they find out I got a pistol and the best idea that they come up with is um, we're going to trade you that gun for <laughs> meth. For some meth, right? And that's how I got introduced to meth. Before you know it, um, it wasn't long before I was giving lines to my little brothers that were 11 years old around me. Mm-hmm. Um, the teacher notices at school that everybody's um, a little more more productive than usual. <laughs> and I mean, she thinks something's wrong, calls the cops, they come, search me. I get caught with my first um, drug charge as a kid. That, was, a, that was the last time. I, that was the first time that I got introduced to the system for drugs, um, methamphetamines in California. And uh, during that period of time, is that when they ship you? Once you start catching that, your first case as a juvenile, that's when your dad has the idea that let's send him to Mexico for some discipline. Is right. that what happened? That's the reason why I shared that. So that's what leads to that. My dad, um, as a um, desperate um I don't know, looking for a solution for this kid that was troubled. He figured I'm going to hit him with the old school, send him to Mexico. That's going to correct him. I'm going to send him with the old school. Um, grandpa was going to put some morals and some and scare him or put some structure into him, discipline. And I'm sure that his heart was in the right place and uh, basically put me on the airplane and uh, sent me off to Mexico to go see a family, to go hang out with my family members. I had a grandpa out there, a grandmother. A um, couple uncles, some cousins, and um, you know, I went to Mexico. Um, I tried to adapt to the change of culture as best as I could. Um, started working in the fields with my grandpa and my uncle, and that wasn't too bad. Um, but ultimately, what ended up happening was uh, a friend of the family, actually, who was supposed to be watching over me, um, ended up sexually molesting me sure and uh i remember that being the moment when i detached from my childhood and um i remember that um resentment and Mm. the anger and that um just the way i looked at humanity from there on was just completely changed it had just just changed it's just traumatic it just changed i mean i was filled with anger filled with um i was confused i was just like my mind was everywhere. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't eat. And it happened over and over and over. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking to myself, man, this person 
who's supposed to be my dad, the one that's supposed to watch over me, sending me to family members who are supposed to watch over me. They did the best they could. They couldn't watch me at all times, but somehow, some way, God knows why I was placed in, in those situations over and over and over. And I was in Mexico for a handful of months that continued over there. Um, and that's what it looked like, that what, what was supposed to be a, um, um, a disciplinary trip to Mexico that was supposed to somehow change me and possibly get me to be a better kid um, ended up being uh, just more trauma, more trauma. Yeah, so exactly. it just contributed to the trauma. And it's, and I know it's such a tough thing, man. And it's inspiring and it's very brave to talk about those things. And I know you've shared them a lot because like you said, man, you know, you've had the ability to help many people because, you know, we always think we're the only ones that those, those things happen to man, but we're not. And when we overcome those things and we learn how to handle them in a healthy way and become assets of ours to help others, then we get to show them how to do that in their lives as well. So you're full of resentment, you're full of trauma, you're dysfunctional family, you've detached from your emotions, you're angry, all these things. And then you come back to the neighborhood and ultimately you run away and you, and you find the gang life, right? right? What do you want to share about that? Because I know there's a whole lot and we've had, the, we've talked a lot. And again, like I said, with that first interrogation, if I would have known the things that I do know now, I, <laughs> I don't know if I would have asked you all those questions yeah. that I know now, dude. But uh, I remember when I heard you do your first speaker meeting, I was like, oh shit, yeah. the real deal. Yeah, he's a, he's a, he's yeah. a real deal. <laughs> and I, I think what made me the real deal was the fact that that lifestyle and the criminal lifestyle and the gang is basically like it requires to, for you to have a lot of anger. Um, it requires for you to have um, to look at the world with like a type of um, violent mentality. And I mean, and I was full of that. You're full of that. I mean, and number one, um, I developed this code going to the streets that it talked about um, no children, talked about no women involved in this. And I love that code because. I was a victim to both of those things, both of seeing my mom go through that and then what was going on to me. So these codes and this brotherhood that, that was being fed to me on the streets, um, like I fell a victim to it because I believed it and I believed in that cause. Mm -hmm. The problem was that that cause wasn't real. Yeah. It was a lie. Right? Sure. It started off something that was meaningful and it was a cause to protect the neighborhood and all that. But then like once the criminal lifestyle continues and I get introduced more to drugs and all that. How old were you when you joined the gang? Um, 12 years old, 12 years old. You're joining a gang. You're carrying a gun, carrying a gun, living the gang life. Yes, sir. Drive by shootings. No drive by shootings, but I had lots of those going on towards me. Lots of those going on towards you. Yeah, I remember the you, house you, being shot up. Sometimes it was being graffitied. Um, how many friends have you lost to the gang lifestyle? You had to just throw a number out there. Man. Over 10. Around there, a combination of drugs and Sure. Shootings and accidents and stuff like that. Um, I think I've had quite a bit more that go end up doing time and giving their life away like that. And I yeah. mean, for shooting people or whatever. Sure. Um, it's just crazy. And, you know, when we when we think about, when, you know, joining a gang, it usually takes that perfect storm of searching for something. We learn and we think what we believe it to be like in the brotherhood of the gang and support the neighborhood and do those things. We believe that, you know, especially when you're so young. But then as you start to experience it, and we know once drugs get involved, we lose all morals and values and none of that shit sure. matters anyways. But it's crazy, man. At that age, you join a group in, in a neighborhood where there's 30 plus gangs, mm -hmm. right? So I'm assuming you guys had a block or a neighborhood or? Yeah, so we had this, the street that we used to go chill on. And I remember um, 
number one, running away from home. There was just no way I wanted to be at home anymore. I couldn't stand being around my dad. And most importantly, they kept on asking me this question that was, what's wrong? How can we help you, right? Like my brothers, I knew they knew something was wrong. Like I had an uncle that, that I grew up with who was my mom's brother who was, I was really close to, and he knew I was troubled. And they would always ask me, Caesar, what's wrong? And I remember looking at him and wanting to tell him, but I couldn't. But you couldn't. I couldn't. So yeah. I would leave home and I would run away. And I knew that they knew something was wrong. It was obvious. But I just didn't have it in to tell them. And they still don't know. The only way they're actually probably ever going to find out is maybe by hearing this. Or, probably by hearing or walking this. into a meeting and hearing me speak. I don't. I have still haven't gone over there and talked to them about this. But what happened was basically so like um, the, the criminal lifestyle, man. Like at first it was it was fun. The girls were there. The drugs were there. Um, the the fast life. Brotherhood. Um, the brotherhood. And I mean, we got the block. Um, selling drugs. I, I'm. I got some gear on. I'm looking pretty fresh. Mm-hmm. And I mean, uh, um, some recognition is coming, which I love. Um, sure. And you, I mean, and I don't want to get too much into it, but sure. I mean, you got some, you worked your way up the ranks I mean, you got some pretty, you know, we don't want to glorify it in any way, dude, but I think it's in a very important part because, you know, that recognition you only gain through, you know, being the, you know, being willing to do whatever it takes to, to put the gang first and, you know, but ultimately those things, man, you know, they, it always leads to prison, right? Right. And I like what you're saying. I don't want to glorify it. And I don't want to sound like a tough guy either. But the truth is, that's where I was at that point in my life. Sure. That's what it looked like for me. Um, so around 17, right before I turned 18 years old, um, uh, there was a shooting um, that left uh, uh, one 14-year-old friend of mine paralyzed for the rest of his life. Another one shot seven times. And then there was a series of shootings and murders going on in the city. Mm-hmm. Um is that it was that out of the out of the norm for that that time period for um, you or was it just it, it wasn't out of the shootings were normal but like retaliation like that back to back back to back yeah. um that was going to cause some heat and they were going to eventually yeah. try to look for the murder weapon and on, by that time i was on gang terms and basically what that meant that i was already on the um gang file as as being involved and validated gang but, member exactly that's yeah. a good way to put it yeah. i was a validated gang member of the streets uh, and uh um they came looking for um, a murder weapon at my house and they didn't find it. But what they did find was two other guns that I didn't know were there that belonged to my little brother that were in a closet. And um, that's how I ended up going to prison for the first time at 18 years old. So I want to say something. So, you know, we've done some prison time, me and you, and uh, you always hear people say, Dude, it wasn't me, bro. I didn't do it, dude. Right? Like, it really, I didn't commit the crime. I was falsely accused. And sure, that definitely does happen. It's a rare thing. In just my opinion, I do watch some crime TV shows and I see wrongly convicted people all the time. But the facts are, is you actually did a prison sentence for your brother. The first one, yeah. And, and you know, to be honest, looking back, I was on my way to prison regardless, to be honest, whether it was going to be for that or something else. Um, and that brother that, I took the time for you, man, like we were really close. Sure. And, and the thought of seeing him going to prison um, and giving up his life away was just like, it was painful to me. And I thought about him to come in jail. And the reason why I said that was because he was preparing himself to go to court and basically say, hey, that weapon didn't belong yeah. to him. It was me. And I mean, my mom and everybody were talking They we were trying to figure out what was the best route to go. And it was, the truth was that like at that point in my life, like I was either going to get shot and killed in the streets. I was going to shoot someone or kill someone in the streets. I was going to end up doing the rest of my life in prison. So like the decision, like 
number one, there was no way I was going to tell on my brother. There was no way I was going to um, tell on anyone at that point in my life. Um, the silence code and all that good stuff yeah. that we know about. And I mean, mm-hmm. um, so would you I, say, I mean, in that lifestyle, right? Like, it's almost like a rite of passage to do a prison term, right? Mm-hmm. Like that almost like, it's almost sure. like mandatory to move up, right? Yeah. If you want to move up in the gang and you want to start calling shots and do all these things, like you got to touch down on the yard, you know, the, was it almost like, well, fuck it, dude. Like I'm going to get mine out the way. <laughs> right. I'm going to handle my business. Was ego involved? Like, what was that like? Cause it must've been tough. I know, um, you know, you've shared previously with me and we've, you know, obviously we've talked about this a lot, man. And, uh, doing a, I mean, you did an eight year prison sentence for your brother yeah. and what the family said and the homies say, you know, like, man, he, he just took a, a bid, didn't, didn't say anything, kept his mouth shut and took a bid for his brother. I mean, in that type of lifestyle, I mean, you, you can't get much more respect than that. Sure. I mean, it, um, I got a lot of that for sure from my family, from, um, friends that knew the situation. Um, but at the end of the day, like, man, I ended up in the pod. I was the only one not looking at life in the pod that I was in. And, um, everybody was just like si- signing life sentences. And I mean, mm-hmm. there, everybody was there for murders, attempted murders. I'm there for possession of firearms. My lawyer's talking about that might be, I might be hitting some other charges if, Basically, I'm under I'm under investigation for shooting and stuff like that. Who knows what that's going to turn out to be? But um, they hit me with this with this um, plea bargain um, of eight years, and and um, and you signed it. They I signed it, but the, the crazy thing about it is that they they had this thing where they wanted me to register as a street terrorist right that's what that's that's to my career my criminal career had gotten to that point where they wanted me to register in any place where i go as a street terrorist because of the gang lifestyle that i was living right so they wanted to keep an eye on me wherever i went and um there was no way around that because there's they had a lot on me and so i signed it right and they gave me eight years and so i want to say something that's 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 funny to me i mean it's not funny but it's kind of funny to me (laughs) so we're going to talk about new freedom and, and the program he went to, and he's now an employee there and it's just a, a complete miracle, but we'll talk about that in a second. But he was in a group there when he got out of prison and, and my wife actually was teaching the group. My wife works there and she was teaching and talking about job skills and a resume. And I think there was a point in time when you said to her, what a resume? Are you kidding me? I got charges. Yeah. And she's like, okay. And keep in mind, she's a normie. I mean, she deals with me. So, you know, how that goes. Bless her, yeah. <laughs> Bless her heart. <laughs> Big shout out to Ash. But uh, you say, dude, I got street terrorism. Yeah. Where do you think I'm going to work at? Yeah. Right. And so we Nobody's think he's going to want to hire me. Nobody <laughs> wants people like me. And, I mean, yeah. exactly. and it's crazy. But the thing is, is based off our actions and the things that we do and we experience this change and we let God enter into our heart and perform a miracle and our actions reflect on a day-to-day basis, today you have everything you could possibly want, an amazing job. Absolutely. And it's just a miracle. So you end up uh, deciding to take the chart, take the case. They're talking about bringing other ones up on you, but you got to you know, register as a street terrorist, right? You're a validated gang member. You're doing a, you're about to do a bid for a sentence that you didn't do, but it's happening and you're okay with it. It's a rite of passage, the respect, um, and that's all coming together. So ultimately you end up, you know, catching an eight year prison sentence and landing in um, the California Department of Corrections. Mm-hmm. So you touched down in the California, you know, Department of Corrections. What was that like for you first? What was it like just that initial hit the yard? Were you on a high custody yard to start? Yeah. 
so you were on a high custody yard in the Department of Corrections. What was that like? And, and it was a prolonged period of time. I know there's a lot of things that happened and just share some of that, just that whole experience of that eight years. What was that like for you? So number one, I hit a, a prison called Soledad, which in Spanish basically basically means loneliness. So just that, <laughs> okay. that name on its own told me when I was on my way there that it wasn't going to be uh, a good okay, experience. Here we go. But uh, man, to be honest, I had prepared myself for that. I had been doing time as a kid in and out juvenile detention centers, county jails, I mean, and, and um, I was ready. Um, I heard a lot of people talk about their first experience with maximum security prisons as being like traumatic, and I mean, sure. like they're scared and they didn't know what to expect, but like the best way I could explain it, describe it to you, I personally didn't never made it to high school. I don't know what a high school reunion looks like, but if I would have, it probably would have looked like how it looked like for me when I walked into that prison yard. And we're talking max custody prison. Max custody guys who I haven't seen in about 10 years. And we're buddies out there. And I mean, we're out there committing crimes. And we're out there, the fast women, the fast lifestyle, the doing drugs, the most. doing the most. And then it's a reunion. And it's like, hey, how you been? I mean, and then we're just going to pick off where we left off at, right? Sure. That, that's what it looked like for me. Um, violence, drugs, um. I went from joining the street gang to joining the prison gang. Um, what it takes to be a part of that, um, the the oath that comes behind that, and I mean, and in a nutshell, like no rehabilitation at all. Zero. I, did, I didn't do nothing with my time. Um, if anything, things got worse. Um, I got introduced to some more people, and I did my whole sentence like that. Just. You did eight years, max life. custody. I'm assuming there's a lot of whole time involved. There was some whole time involved there for sure, man. Um, some exercising in the, in the cell, you know, doing the burpees. and 113, brother. Sounding off when I'm done. And, <laughs> you know, excuse me on the tears, excuse yeah. me on the run. Hey, attention on the run, attention on the cluster. All that stuff, yeah. yeah all that, man. And, and it's it's crazy, man. When we look back on it, and I look back at the, the whole time and the prison time, I just, it just blows my mind the, the things that we put ourselves through. And, uh, you know, it's just it's in, it's the insanity of the disease. But we're talking about being involved in a high level prison gang, right? Sure. Like, and I, I was 100 percent convinced at that time that that's how I was going to spend the rest of my life. And I was OK with that. I didn't have no kids. I, like I thought I was a brave person. I thought I was courageous because I was going into like dangerous situations and I was quick to either aim a weapon or pack a weapon or or commit violent acts. But looking back after doing the steps, having a sponsor, having a mentor, having a spiritual advisor, having a relationship with God, looking back, I just had no self-worth. Mm -hmm. That's what it sure. really was. And I mean, I didn't value myself. I was just like, I would do disposable. Anything. I was just exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You, that's exactly a great word. Yeah. Just, just disposable, man. And, uh, you know, I don't want you to get into the specifics, but I mean, you put yourself in some extremely high risk situations and, you know, we always talk about being I'm fearless, right? I do all these crazy things and I'm part of this lifestyle and the crimes that I commit and be willing to commit violence. And, you know, someone calls a shot in the yard or I call the shot in the yard and that's what happens. And I'm fearless for doing it. But the truth is we're consumed by fear and that's why we do it. Yes, absolutely. Driven by it. And we're driven, by, driven it. by it. I mean, you guys can't see me. Some of you guys that know me know that I'm a short guy. I mean, I'm probably five, six if I'm wearing boots, but I'm, I'm a short guy. And I mean, I'm not intimidating. I'm there's nothing really like threatening about me, but um, at that time, like I had a big group behind me, and I mean, and and, and I like that recognition. Basically, what I'm saying, mm -hmm. and it became part of my hype, became part of my disease, and sure. 
and, and I really digged it at that time. Unfortunately, again, I'm not trying to sell them tough. It's just where I was at at that point I'm in sure. my life. And it's important to see that, man, to be able to relate to the audience that you can. Dude. It's, it's just important that everyone really understands, like, we're talking about high-level gang life on the streets, now in prison, every everything that comes along with it. And, you know, we get addicted to that kind of lifestyle, that recognition, the ego gets involved, and it's just something that becomes extremely difficult. So you do an eight-year prison sentence, high-level yard, in and out uh, of the hole, committing crimes while you're in there. Did you catch any more time while you're in? No. Close. No, no. Yeah. <laughs> Close. I ended up, <laughs> I ended up uh, almost maxing out my sentence. Um, I, I, I Good time across, gone. Yeah, it's yeah. It wasn't nothing productive where I'm like getting released with certificates or like you didn't complete no programs. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't complete any kind of program in there. And I mean, I don't actually. They might. I don't even know if they had any. To be honest, I never looked through them. I had no interest in it. Uh, I was that kind of person that like if you were from my neighborhood my neck of the woods and you were pulling up and you're talking about recovery or you're talking about God, or you're talking about being a Christian. Like I was going to target you. We're going to smash you. And you're not going to be on that yard because I need to have room for someone that I could rely Some on soldiers in case yeah. we go to war. Right. Sure. And that's a high, and, and, you know, in that type of environment, I mean, that's a very realistic thing. I mean, exactly it's, you guys are in war at all times. Yeah. It's extremely hostile environment. dude. And it's until you've ever been on a high level yard like that. I don't think anyone will ever understand what that tension's like. And when it gets silent, dude, when it gets quiet and everyone's on edge and we know that something is going to happen and it's just a crazy way to live our life, but that becomes normal to us. That was normal for me. We almost become when things are okay and things are comfortable and there's peace it, that almost becomes uncomfortable to us. And it's just, it's a, it's a trip. So you get out in 2008 after doing all that time. Now, I remember you telling me a long time back and you said that when you got out of prison, you actually had orders. You, yeah. you left with a kite from the yard sure. with some some things to handle on the streets, because just like you had moved up the ranks on the streets, you must have moved up the ranks in the prison system. Yeah, you know, good memory. Yeah. And I do. Got, <laughs> you yeah. told me that a long time ago and you actually left with a kite hidden mm -hmm. in the safe. In let's the just safe. say yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's Man. just say in the safe. Yeah, I could talk a little bit about that. So yeah. my release date, my. Man, my brothers um, unite. They're, I got three brothers. That, my twin brother, my youngest brother, and my oldest brother are out at this time all together. And um, they get together on my release date, and they decide to come up to pick me up early in the morning from prison. And, and um, man, the night before, I got this package together and basically instructions, and I was going to meet up, and basically I was going to pick off on the streets and continue my criminal career. Sure. Um, somehow, um, they must have been tipped off or something like that. They came, um, the gang unit of the prison systems came and they um, took me to a hole and x-rayed me and there was, in my stomach, sure enough, there were some kites in there, right? <laughs> and <laughs> This I got, is on your way out the gate. This is on my way out the gate. And I mean, I'm already preparing for what's coming up ahead. And I got family waiting for me outside and, and release dates at eight and it's turning into like, 11 12 and they're like hey what's going on and then the sergeants and everybody's telling them hey um this guy might not get released you guys might have to go back without yeah. him we're still trying to see what we're going to do with him um they ended story, up releasing you didn't they, they ended up releasing yeah. me they there was codes that this thing was written on that they couldn't necessarily get right into they couldn't decipher they, it they, they just didn't have enough and they had to release me but they told me hey man we're going to crack this and when we crack this we're going to come get you and i was like handle your business that's what it is and that's what it is <laughs> i mean and um so basically what that looked like for me, I got released and, um, you know, I went to go meet up with my family and it was like, 
it was a cool get together. And I mean, but I remember thinking in my mind, the back of my mind, I knew that um, the only thing that I had really on my mind was continuing my criminal lifestyle. And I was just going to enjoy being with him for a few days because I knew in a few days I was going to make that decision to continue my path and it wasn't going to involve them. Sure. And it was going to break their heart because they were thinking that it was going to be different, that there was some change. Later, that... Exactly. And I mean, they hadn't seen what was going on in there. Um, I had probably had like two visits during the whole time I was down. Um, so my, my, my uncle passed away while I was in prison. The one that was really close to me, he was like a father to me and that was painful, but like there really wasn't too much communication. I would correspond through mail a little bit, maybe some phone calls. But as far as they knew, like they thought I was going to come out and be a different man. Like eight years, I put it scared him straight, but I wasn't ready to turn down. If anything, I was ready to turn up. And I mean, sure. I'm like we still got to, I mean, focus you on got, you got you got things you need to handle and yeah and that's what it looked like for me and that's what it looked like so during that period of time we're talking about in and out parole violations about another three years violating going in new case going in in sure. and out violations and you know all every time you know we get into situations you know until i worked a program recovery it was everybody else's fault it's the city of peoria's fault it's the cops fault it's my probation's fault if i could just get out of this city if i can get out of this state if i can get out of this town we always try geographical moves but the problem is when we make these moves we're there we go where we go and we are the problem but we don't realize that we're delusional and it's everybody else's fault and really truly for me until i worked the steps i didn't really realize that i blamed everyone for my problems but you ultimately try a geographical change and you end up in yuma so you touch down in yuma what was that time period like for you in yuma um so what leads to that a little bit is uh i get out real quick um i meet a girl um get her pregnant we have kids together we have that kid together then another one comes but the whole relationship was bad we we're both on drugs both of my kids were born on uh tested positive for drugs um shooting up dope on drugs for just it was just Insane. a complete yeah nightmare mm -hmm. and that was the beginning of what should have been some red flags for me looking back like like i said i will never turn into that person that's going to treat a woman like this i will never be this i wouldn't all these codes and all that yeah. they were starting to go out the window and i mean I'm, now i'm giving drugs to a girl that's pregnant now i'm using drugs with the girl that's pregnant and i mean it and i remember thinking to myself man i'm losing i'm losing sight of of, of the prison that i am sure and uh e eventually what happened was i got arrested she got arrested my mom had to step in to get the kids my mom lives in Yuma, so she got the kids, headed out to Yuma with the kids, and that's what that's what led, led you out, me to, Yuma. out to Yuma. Sure. And um, to be honest, like I remember giving myself a resolution. Let me know, right? This is my shot right here. Yeah. I'm gonna go out there and I'm gonna change my life. I'm gonna try to change. I'm not sure what's out there, but uh, to be honest, uh, I was still far from from the necessary change because I was like trying to change like a couple things. I wasn't really trying to like. Yeah, I just need Transfer. to figure out how I can live this this lifestyle, this gang lifestyle, this drug lifestyle without consequences. That's what I need to change. I need to change yeah. getting arrested. That's <laughs> the problem. Yeah, okay. yeah. I, I just want to use right. without going to prison. I want to yeah. use without being on probation. I want to use yeah. without experiencing consequences. I want to get high but have money and be there for my kids. You got it. But they don't go together. It just yeah. doesn't work that way. We have all these ideas of how we hope it'll go in these master plans. And it's just when drugs are involved, you know. It just it talks about that in the big book, the types of users. It says over remorseful, make many resolutions, but never a decision. Nothing ever changes. Well, yeah. And, and so I can relate to all five types of users in the doctor's opinion, man. And uh, when I think of that, I can fully diagnose myself. 
So you end up in Yuma and, you know, you're trying to be there for your kids, but you're still living this lifestyle. And, you know, what came with that, though? What like what came with that period of time? Because Mexico's right there, right? I mean, the border's right there. So what was that really like for you? What were you up to during that period of time? So, like, man, I gave it an impressive five months where I was actually, like, really doing okay. I had a little job, a little studio. I was living with my kids. Um, I had disconnected from the old girlfriend. She was out there in Anaheim still running around um, doing her thing and all that. And that was fine. But, man, one day... I decided to tell my mom, hey, can you watch the kids for a couple hours? I think I'm going to go look for a new job. And she was like, pack a bag. I mean, get it, give me everything that I might need. I'll see you in a few hours. And then I got this urge to go use. And then I went and used. And I never went back for my kids. Yeah. And uh, looking back um, today, like, that was a very painful thing for me. I mean, to, to um, have this craving come over me mm-hmm. where I'm literally going to let go of the most valuable thing that I had in life at that time, right? Mm-hmm. And just just go and get high and just completely give it all away, right? And that's what I did. So I, I I ended up just giving my kids to my mom, and she stepped up. God bless her heart. To this day, she's still watching over them. Shout out, mom. Shout out to all the moms who yeah, are out there, living, living living with any addicts or stepping up and doing what what we're supposed to be doing. It's just they're a blessing. Absolutely, yeah. you know. So. It's- what a couple hours turns into turns into years, right? Yeah. Turns into years. And, you know, so when we get sober, we think about these things, the horrible things we've done to the people that we love the most. And I remember I would think, dude, who, I'm a piece of shit for doing those kind of things. Who does that? Mm-hmm. Like I deserve this lifestyle that I'm living. But what I also realized and what was the first bit of hope for me in the doctor's opinion again as well, where it says the doctor's series, we have an allergy to drugs and alcohol interests us. Right. But as layman as our opinion is the soundest may of course mean little, but here's the most important part. It explains many things for which we cannot otherwise account. So you can't account for why you said you were going to be right back and didn't come back, right? We can account for the reason why I've done the things that I've done in my life to my family, to my mom, to my dad, to my brother, to my wife, to my daughter. But it's because I'm in the midst of a mental obsession, that craving sure. that you talked about. And so that's why we do those things. So it was the first bit of hope for me. I'm not a bad person. I'm just a sick person with an untreated illness. So if I treat this disease, this addiction, I don't do those things, right? And so that was the first bit of hope for me. And so, you know, you meet another girl while you're out there? Sure. Uh, well, first and foremost, man, my family couldn't understand that. Uh, they knew I had a problem with drugs and all that, but that was like just crazy to them that I went from being like a single dad on top of the world, doing the best I could, working a job. At a little, they were super proud of me. Sure. You know what I mean, and then just like gone, gone. I yeah. mean, and that split my family apart a little bit. And I mean, and sure. And then, not to mention, one day, uh, my youngest brother, and we were having this conversation about uh, if something to do with this girl that I was dating at the time, and and he smiled while I was talking to him, and I took it as disrespect, and I started assaulting him in front of his family. Sure. Right. And this is me sober. Right. Right. And looking back today, I I, I identify what that was. And it's, I lived my life even sober under a prison code and a street code where I was sure. just like, this is disrespectful. This is disrespectful. Yeah. That's disrespectful. This guy, I mean, and it was just completely governing my life. And I couldn't get a hold of, I couldn't get it together. But either way, though, so what happened was I met this other girl who becomes a big part of my life because she's still in my life today. And I ended up having, uh, 
an amazing adopted daughter with her and and, and a son with her. And um, basically what it looks like is, uh, man, uh, her boyfriend was one of my customers that started selling drugs. You know, the way I got to the drugs, let me just kind of give you a little story. I was at Fry's and I don't know where this guy I know from childhood is at Fry's and he's completely strung out, right? And he's like, hey, man, how you been, blah, blah, blah. He's like, man, we're going to lace you up. We got this thing on lock over here. Here's my here number. We go. Here we go. Give me a call. And now you're on deck. Now I'm, now I'm on deck and out here in Arizona now in Yuma, right? And and um, during that time, I met I met um, Michelle. Sure. And um, um, she was currently pregnant with um, one of my clients. Yeah. Right? And uh, this guy ended up owing me so much money that he thought I was going to come get him. So he left her pregnant and just dipped on her. Sure. And I went to go collect money. He wasn't there. She told me I left everything. And that's how I met her. And that's how you met her, that's right? That's how I met her. And then we started hitting it off. And and um, I noticed she was pregnant. And then most importantly, she had an apartment. That yeah. evening. I was like, man, I need to get into that apartment. Yeah, I, I need, need to do that. I need to start selling drugs out of there or whatever. And I mean, and, and just somehow just negotiating and convincing, I mean, that I, I could get in there. And either way, we became good friends. And and um, that led later on to to uh, a relationship with her. But what that looked like, man, with her was just, man, I hit lows that I never thought I would hit. Um, during her pregnancy, like I introduced her to more drugs, and and now I'm selling drugs out of her apartment. And and before we know it, we're literally become become crime partners. We're crossing the border together. We're we're coming back loaded. Now I'm. Now I got the kids involved in the hustle, you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. and um man, I remember thinking this is this can't be going down. How am I hitting that low point where I'm just involving my kids to um to strap drugs around them or this girl, this beautiful girl who do who will do anything for me, pack her body with drugs too, and we're crossing the border and now we're hustling together and eventually here comes the violence, and if I'm not hitting her, she's attacking me. By the way, she probably kicked my ass more than I did, I did to her. <laughs> you probably deserve that shit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but either way, though, man, what it looked like is just, man, a family affair, basically. I mean, we're just out there doing the most, and we're homeless, and then we're up here, and now we're down here, and that led to, um, man, another prison sentence, basically. So, yeah, so that's the progression, right? You know, the consequences become greater, the... Uh, you know, the disease progresses, the ju- the violence. I mean, everything that comes with it. I know that you guys had a, a house fire, your whole house yeah. burnt down. I remember on, you sharing on, Christmas, on yeah. Christmas, your house burnt down. I mean, you know, when we talk about doing negative and getting negative laws of attraction, when I, when I put negative vibes out, that's what I get in return and it touches every aspect of my life. And ultimately it leads to another prison sense for you. And I want to kind of wrap this up for part one. Um, you know, I always like to post these in, in two parts this way, you know, it's not so long, but also you just can really soak in the message from the beginning. The miracle comes in part two. So I just want to encourage everyone that all the listeners out there all across the world that I have, and it's a blessing to have you guys share this recovery with me and just play a part in my recovery. And maybe I could play a small part in yours. Uh, part one, uh, definitely appreciate it and soak it in. But part two, we'll be posting in a couple days. So please tune in and listen to part two because that's where the miracle comes into play. Tune in for part two.